Hello, Health Investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Jordan Howarth. Jordan is a clinical physiologist specializing in gastrointestinal health and is dedicated to helping people with digestive disorders. He regularly carries out scientific research and has presented at international conferences. Jordan's particular interest is the gut microbiome and its role in overall health, as well as the relationships between diet, physiology, and gut bacteria. In the episode, Jordan shares whether probiotics in pill form are better than fermented foods, what research says about artificial sweeteners, like those in diet soda, and microbiome health, his thoughts on following a gluten-free diet for optimal gut health, and more. If you've been enjoying the Health Investment Podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd write an Apple Podcast review. Reviews not only provide me with great feedback, but they also help this podcast to gain traction and get discovered by new listeners. To leave a review, simply visit thehealthinvestment.com review. It only takes about five minutes to do, and I cannot thank you enough for your support. All right, it's time to hear from Jordan. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing. You deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing. There are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm going to share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I want to help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one, so visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Jordan. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I know we have connected on Instagram, and I love all of your informational posts, often in the form of a visual, which is super helpful. Uh, But I just can't wait to pick your brain today and ask you a thousand things. (laughs) Thanks, Brooke. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. And you know, I only started the Instagram page this year, and I think you were one of the first people to, you know, to reach out and support it. So, um, you know, I feel quite honoured to to be here today. And, oh, um, awesome! That's great. That's fun to know. Fun fact. Then, when you hit, you know, the hundreds of thousands, I can yeah. say I was one of the first. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Can you share with everybody your story and specifically what led you to become a gastrointestinal physiologist? Oh, right. So I always wanted to be a a scientist and a researcher, and I graduated in biomedical science at university. But a career in gastrointestinal physiology wasn't necessarily my first choice. So I wanted to specialize in immunology because I was actually diagnosed with an autoimmune condition in my late teens. So my interests sort of stem from there, and I was actually about to start a master's degree in immunology, but I came across this job uh, job opportunity on a science careers webpage, and it was a three-year graduate scheme to become a gastrointestinal physiologist, and I'm 
what attracted me was the chance to, you know, help patients and carry out scientific research while getting paid, you know, instead of spending, you know, another £9,000 on a degree, which might not necessarily get me a job. Uh, but back then, I didn't actually realise how central the gut is to health, you know, especially with the immune system and autoimmune disease. So it kind of worked out for the best. And now I have a huge passion for gut health and especially gut, the gut microbiome. So, you know, not just my interest, but general interest in uh, the gut microbiome has exploded recently. I'm sure you're aware Um you know, it's a hot topic and we know the gut microbiome is sort of, it's fundamental to health and um, dysbiosis. So when I say dysbiosis, it means uh, an intestinal, um, an imbalance in the intestinal bacteria and dysbiosis, you know, it's associated with many diseases, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, disorders of the brain, whether that's mood, so depression, anxiety, you know, cognition. Uh, like Alzheimer's disease or even behavioral disorders, schizophrenia and uh, autism. And dysbiosis is also associated with allergies and autoimmune disease, which I had an interest in, cancers, even metabolic disease like obesity. And this sort of makes sense when you realize there are more bacterial cells in your gut than there are human cells in your entire body. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, basically the laundry list you just said there, it's associated with everything. Yeah. It seems. It wow. Is, yeah, it's mad. And we're with bacteria, you know, in the gut, we're unsure of, of the exact number. Uh, we originally thought, you know, they outnumbered us by 10 to 1. So that would be like two kilograms of bacteria living inside the gut. But we, you know, we think it's it's actually a bit less than that, probably around 200 grams of bacteria. So about the size of a grapefruit still. That is 39 trillion bacteria compared to 30 trillion human cells. So you can see they have a significant impact, you know, on our health. Mm, right. So this is kind of, there's, I feel like it's kind of a new field or I don't know, is this still kind of up and coming, would you say? It's research on gut. Yeah, it's very emerging still, you know, we've still got a long way to go. It, it's in its infancy. But we are seeing, you know, these uh, associations with, with multiple diseases now. And, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in things like probiotics and fecal microbiota transplants. So, you know, taking someone else's gut bacteria and giving it to someone else and improving certain health conditions. So it really is an emerging field in science and it's only going to get you know, bigger over the next few years. Mm. That must be so cool to be in a field where there's such emerging science and so much to learn. Mm, definitely. I mean, my, my role involves research as well. So having the opportunity to carry out scientific research and contribute to that field is quite rewarding too. Mm. Well, right. So you kind of touched on a couple of things already, but I think since there's so much information just kind of pouring out about gut, gut health, I mm -hmm. find that at the same speed, maybe there's just as much misinformation out there. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm constantly seeing things like detox teas and supplements and yeah. all these sort of pills and quick fixes, you know, take this and it'll fix your 
microbiome in a night or whatever. Um, So I'd love to kind of go through a list of things that I've seen out there and hear your thoughts on those, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. So let's start with, you mentioned probiotics Mm. in the form of pills. Let's start with, is that something that we should be taking or not? Well, I'm actually a huge fan of probiotics, but I want to point out, you know, a couple of things firstly, you know, taking this probiotic or one probiotic is not going to replace a poor diet or, or lifestyle. And a diet especially is is the best thing to improve gut health, you know, a diet rich in, in prebiotics and fiber. If you can tolerate it, of course, you know, not everyone can tolerate increased fiber, especially those with IBS. But if you, you know, if you want to take a probiotic, choose one with good uh, good evidence behind it. And most probiotics, you know, they're studied for certain conditions or indications like IBS, constipation, there's studies in obesity. And recently, you know, there was a review in depression and anxiety that showed probiotics could actually reduce symptoms of depression. And the indication out there with the strongest evidence for using a probiotic is diarrhea, whether that's uh, traveler's diarrhea. So, you know, you when you go on holiday, you go on vacation and you go to another country and you may have had this book, but you, you experience a sudden change in your toilet habit. Yeah. 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 I mean, I visited several countries in North Africa a few years ago, Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, all beautiful countries, but <laughs> my gut took a bit of a hitting. And um, mm. back then I, I didn't know what I did now, but Studies have shown that taking a probiotic, especially, you know, a yeast strain like Saccharomyces boulardii, has been shown to prevent traveler's diarrhea and antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And that actually reminds me, you know, if you're going to take antibiotics, you know, you most definitely should take a probiotic at the same time. You don't want to wait until after you finish the course. Studies have shown that the antibiotics are most effective for preventing antibiotic-associated diarrhea within two days of starting them. You know, if you wait till you finish your course, you could end up with what I described before, intestinal dysbiosis, which is an imbalance in the gut bacteria. And the worst case scenario would be something called a recurrent C. diff infection. And C. diff is a highly antibiotic resistant pathogen, causes really severe diarrhea, and it can actually be life threatening. So it's best to take probiotics if you're going to take antibiotics. Mm. Yeah. I've got some. So tips. Do you... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, I was just going to follow up. So let's say you are traveling. Yeah. Would you, so you definitely recommend taking a probiotic then. Do you take it weeks leading up to travel or? You can't, yeah. Um, so the studies show, you know, a couple of weeks before and during. So I would take it, you know, maybe one week or two weeks before going away. And whilst I'm there specifically. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then what were you going to say about? No, I was just going to say, I, you know, probiotics the thing is everyone wants to know which probiotics should I take and like I said probiotics are for certain indications you know if you suffer from constipation you want to take one that's been shown to reduce that or if you you know if you have on the other hand a diarrhea you want to take one that may prevent that but in general if you just want to take a probiotic for health then some tips are you know need to store them properly and that is storing them at room temperature in the dark cupboard. But some of them might need to be stored in the fridge once they're open. So always check the label. And the best thing to do when taking a probiotic is to take it with food now. 
some people take them on an empty stomach because they think, you know, I'm going to get more exposure of this bacteria in my gut. But stomach acid kills microbes, but the food, when we eat meals, that buffers the acidity of the stomach. So the best time to actually take a probiotic is probably around 30 to 60 minutes after the meal. And what happens is, you know, the food will buffer the pH of the stomach and about 30 to 60 minutes later, the, the stomach will start to empty. So the probiotic can almost, you know, hitch a ride out of the stomach in, into the intestinal tract. And the next thing to bear in mind is what strains of bacteria, you know, I've just described Saccharomyces boulardii. This is a yeast strain and yeast are really good for preventing diarrhea because they, they're good at keeping bacteria in check. But, you know, there's some probiotics that contain 14, 15 different strains of bacteria. And it's totally up to you. If you want to take one specific strain for that strain's, you know, proven benefits, um, like lactobacillus ruteri is my favorite. I, I take that routinely um, myself, even though I consider myself to be generally healthy, you know. But this has been shown to be great for skin and hair health. It does this by promoting the release of the hormone oxytocin. And then on the other hand, you take a multi-strain if you want to just increase the diversity in your gut. And then the last thing I want to point out about probiotics is the concentration. You know, on the front of the bottle, you'll see 1 billion CFUs or 5 billion CFUs or you know, even 50 billion. And this is just describing the concentration of bacteria per dose. And CFUs means colony forming units. So there's no evidence yet for, you know, what the ideal dose is. Naturally, you'd think well, the larger dose, the better, but we just, you know, we don't have the evidence to support that yet. Hmm. Is there a reliable resource to go to on some website or maybe, maybe it's your Instagram page to find? I mean, yeah, hit my Instagram yeah. page up, you know, but um, the best thing to do is to look at, you know, PubMed or a general, you know, scientific uh, research and web page and just type in you know probiotics maybe maybe a review because reviews tend to be the the highest um hierarchical you know st strongest evidence for for their use um but you can also just just even in general you know news articles like science daily they they publish the you know the disseminated findings in a for a general reader you know you can read it in a couple of minutes and find oh well you know, this probiotic has recently been shown to improve so-and-so. So, yeah, they're probably my mm. go-to sources. Is it worth taking different strains kind of off and on different months? Does that help at all? Or just you can take the same one all the time? So what I advise is most studies look at the use of a probiotic for around eight weeks. So don't give up on taking the probiotic if it doesn't work after a couple of days, you know, you want to give it at least eight weeks before you make your mind up on that probiotic. Mm -hmm. If it's say after eight weeks and you know, you feel good, you can carry on taking it, but I wouldn't necessarily advise taking the probiotic long-term forever just because our, our microbiome is dynamic. It, it evolves, you know, every season and you want to allow it to, you know, adapt slightly. You could change the probiotic. As I said, multi-strains are really good for increasing diversity. But I should really put into perspective, you know, the concentration of, of bacteria in um, in a probiotic, they're usually around two to five billion. All right. But the colon where most of the gut microbiome live, 
the concentration is in the in the trillions. So to have an impact in in the in the gut microbiota in the colon, you'd think you'd need you know quite a substantial dose. So we think that if you see benefits from probiotics with you know lower numbers, they could actually be having an effect in in the small intestine as opposed to the colon, you know, the, the large intestine where most of the gut microbiota is. Mm. Okay, interesting. I love the practical tip you gave of taking it 30 minutes after you eat. Yeah. I've read somewhere that it's not worth it because it just burns everything off the acidity in your stomach. Um, so I love that kind of the probiotic writing on the food. And mm. that's a really good, I think, practical tip. Mm, definitely, yeah. Uh, so you also mentioned antibiotics. So is it best to avoid antibiotics whenever possible and take them obviously when necessary, but do those really have a significant impact on your gut microbiome? So antibiotics are probably one of the, the most detrimental medications on the gut microbiota and, you know, taking them could be a life life-saving situation so i would never say don't take antibiotics if you need them but they're definitely over prescribed i mean in the uk it's not um it's not unprecedented for someone to go to the doctors with like the common cold and come back with some antibiotics colds mm-hmm. are, are typically viral infections the antibiotics are not really going to do anything and it's dangerous because the, the overuse leads to antibiotic resistance and each time, each, um, each time you take an antibiotic, you're essentially playing with fire. You know, they wipe out the gut microbiota and it takes weeks or sometimes months for it to return to like equilibrium. And unfortunately, you know, in some people, it never goes back to normal. They end up with digestive issues like bloating, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and that's a result of these changes that the antibiotics have caused to their gut. But as I mentioned, you know, you can maybe prevent this if you take a probiotic at the same time as your antibiotics, not afterwards. Mm, mm. Okay. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's, I think it's similar in the United States of just over prescription. Again, obviously, if you need them, take them. But yeah. we do have that kind of prevalence here, I think, as well of I have a sniffle. Here's an antibiotic. I think it's gotten better talking to some of my doctor friends. Mm. I think doctors are now kind of more aware of the antibiotic resistance problem, but yeah, that's just, that's good to know. Uh, What about getting your probiotics in the form of fermented foods? Are you a fan of that? You know, I I love fermented foods um, and that's because they often contain probiotics and prebiotics too. So prebiotics are, are what feed the the bacteria, the probiotics, and a good example is sauerkraut. You know, sauerkraut contains cabbage. That's the prebiotic, and the probiotics are the the lactic acid bacteria munching away on the cabbage. And fermented foods, you know, they should be bought from the refrigerated section, and that's because you know they contain microbes. And if you leave it out on the shelf, they're going to keep on growing, and they could get contaminated. So. I regularly go to to my local shop, um, the big ones, you know, probably like Walmart over there or or whatever. And um, you see a, a jar of sauerkraut on just the, the normal shelf. But this has probably got no probiotics in it. it. It will have been pasteurized to, you know, have a long shelf life. So the probiotic have 
bacteria that they've been killed and now it's just essentially a prebiotic and fermented foods you know they normally contain more bacteria than probiotic supplements so in that sense you you need to eat them in smaller doses and you don't want to go out and buy like a a big jar of of kimchi that's like japanese uh korean uh sauerkraut and eat that all at once you know you want to eat it over a few days small amounts consistently introduce those bacteria into your gut and it's probably going to save your bank balance too (laughs) Mm. do you say that that could even replace a probiotic pill or it's important to do both i would say fermented foods are, are probably better they're typically more accessible it's fun because you can actually learn to make your own and you know you can experiment with flavors that you like um probiotics typically more expensive you know it's the the they have more research behind them but um i think fermented foods are easier to incorporate more regularly into the diet Mm -hmm. you mentioned prebiotics and probiotics but i remember you also did a post where you mentioned postbiotics yes so can you describe actually just in a little more detail even what prebiotics are probiotics and also postbiotics which i had never heard of (laughs) of course again postbiotics is a new term in a new emerging term in in uh the science so prebiotics they're they essentially feed the beneficial gut bacteria the probiotics contain the beneficial gut bacteria and postbiotics are the products of beneficial gut bacteria okay so postbiotics um they are gaining a lot of interest because the benefits could you know we could go straight to the health benefits of the gut, gut bacteria and bacteria, they produce different metabolic products like butyrate. This is a short chain fatty acid, and it's been shown to reduce intestinal inflammation, reduce oxidative stress. It's the preferred energy source by the cells in the colon. It might protect against colon cancer. You know, it's really low in um, inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, having the chance to, you know, get butyrate straight up into the gut could be really beneficial to health. Uh, there's other examples, bacteria ferment, um, sorry, when they ferment food, uh, carbohydrates and stuff, they produce vitamins. Best examples being like vitamin K and B vitamins like um, biotin, uh, folate, riboflavin. So essentially, you know, fermented foods we just talked about, they're actually going to contain all three prebiotics probiotics and postbiotics and that's why they're so good to include in the diet and probably why they're actually a bit better than you know probiotics themselves Mm, interesting and then things like garlic is garlic a prebiotic yeah garlic is a prebiotic garlic is a really good prebiotic but it's also high fodmap so when i say high fodmap FODMAP stand for fermentable carbohydrates. These are carbohydrates that are typically undigested. So the bacteria are allowed to, you know, have a go at them and ferment them. But garlic is really high in these FODMAPs. So people with IBS and dysbiosis and something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, where there's an overgrowth of bacteria in a small bowel, the bacteria will just over ferment the garlic, produce a lot of gas and it can cause, you know, bloating wind it can also affect the bowel habit as well so 
garlic is one of my favorite things you know to use i use it often but unfortunately some people you know just they just can't tolerate it and if you want to if you want to get the garlic flavor uh, a hint is you know put the garlic in in oil and use the just the oil but take the garlic out that can help to flavor you flavor your food but you're not going to get the prebiotic fibers from that but you know if it's going to save you from from bloating then it's probably for the best <laughs> so is that how you know if you should avoid garlic and other prebiotics maybe and put let's see probiotics well, yeah. as well like yeah, if so, you're getting a lot of bloating yeah if you're getting a lot of bloating my first thing would be to say well what foods are causing the bloating how long after eating the foods are you getting the bloating and garlic is a big culprit so are onions as well garlic and onions are two probably the highest FODMAP foods but it can be other foods as well like apples you know peas and if you're getting bloating from these kind of foods it's a good indication that you know you've got sort of an overgrowth um, of bacteria in your gut and prebiotics well typical prebiotics you know high in fiber are not going to be the best option in that case I would still recommend prebiotics but I would look towards something called polyphenols um polyphenols are these little sort of antioxidant molecules found in in fruit and vegetables but you know they're really high in blueberries uh, green tea coffee dark chocolate and these you know these are less likely to cause bloating but they're still a source of prebiotics which can help to you know promote the beneficial bacteria in the gut mm. so if you can't tolerate let's say garlic and onions right now, does Mm -hmm. that mean you'll never be able to tolerate them? Or how can a person kind of propagate the good gut bacteria so that they can eventually tolerate that? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean you you won't be able to tolerate them. Firstly, I mean, if you want them right away, you know, they form a part of of all your recipes, then I'd look to low FODMAP alternatives, such as, you know, garlic infused oil, onion, onion infused oil, you could use chives, they give you that sort of flavor. Um, there's an Indian herb. I always forget how to pronounce it, like asafoetida. That's another thing you can use. But if you want, you know, you want to be able to enjoy yourself, go out for a meal that you know is going to be high in garlic and onions and not have to suffer the blow afterwards, the first thing I would recommend is actually, you know, getting tested to see if you do have something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And, you know, if, if that's the case, then you can get maybe help with a healthcare professional on, on how to treat that because it's typically hard to eradicate something like that. You know, we can make small changes uh, in the diet, but ultimately I think, you know, you probably need more conventional treatments. It's quite ironic actually that for something like SIBO, the the, the best, most effective treatment is, is antibiotics. So mm. I know I just said, you know, it, it's one of the worst things for the gut, but in rare, in rare cases, in rare examples like that, they may actually be beneficial. Right. What about artificial sweeteners, especially diet soda? Okay, so artificial sweeteners is it's a bit of a, you know, tricky, tricky area. There's been some really good large observational studies published, and they're essentially showing that artificial sweeteners have no benefits to health. And there was a really large one in Europe in 450,000 people. And it suggested that consuming just two or more artificial sweetened drinks like diet sodas per day, that was associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. 
And then another recent study showed, you know, the more artificial sweeteners you consume in the day, the greater the risk of cardiovascular disease. But I should say that applies to both artificial sweeteners and, you know, sugar sweetened beverages as well. But one thing to bear in mind is they are observational studies, you know, they're not randomized clinical trials. So you could say, well, the people consuming more artificial sweeteners probably still have you know, poor diet and lifestyle choices. And that's probably true. But there's a lot of growing evidence now, especially in animal studies, to show that artificial sweeteners cause dramatic shifts in the gut microbiota to one that you know negatively affects metabolic health. And the most common synthetic artificial sweetener is aspartame. You know, that's in most of the diet sodas. And chronic low-dose aspartame um, seems to cause intestinal dysbiosis in rats. But I think there's probably worse synthetic sweeteners out there than aspartame, those being uh, saccharin and sucralose. Now, these two in particular show the, the biggest changes to the gut microbiome in animal studies, you know, especially with um, a shift in the gut bacteria to one that's causing more inflammation and a decrease in the beneficial bacteria like bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. So ultimately we, we don't have you know enough evidence in humans to say, you know, don't drink them. So definitely don't avoid diet soda if you enjoy them. But I'm, I just think maybe, you know, don't consume them every day because it might not be good for the gut in, in the long term. Yeah. Would you still recommend diet soda over regular soda? See, my profession, (laughs) yeah, it's a tough one because it, you know, some people want to lose weight and in the short term, if you want weight loss, then artificial sweeteners, diet soda is, is probably the option. But like in my case where I rarely drink soft drinks anyway, if I'm going to drink a soft drink, I'm probably just going to have the normal soda. But as I said, you know, if, if weight loss was your short-term goal, then maybe the diet soda is best. But I would not advise, you know, drinking it every single day. Yeah. What about stevia? I know that's a hot yeah. artificial sweetener. Have you seen any research on that in the gut microbiome? There's a, there's a little bit of research. So there was a review and they looked at, you know, all the, all the artificial sweeteners, like the synthetic ones that I've just described and, the non-synthetic ones like stevia and then like the the polyols um like sorbitol which is found in you know chewing gum it's very common in sugar-free chewing gum and i think you know those are a little bit better than the synthetic you know the changes they make to the gut microbiome seem to be to be less impactful so i think there's there's a place for stevia and um other like non-synthetic sweeteners like um I can never pronounce it. There's one found in, in licorice, um, glycerin or, or something like that. So I think there's definitely a place for those in the diet. But it's like everything, you know, in moderation, everything is fine in, in moderation. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be adding you know, stevia to everything, but I would definitely prefer to use it over like sucralose. I think that's like mm. is that Splenda in the US? I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, we have Splenda and yeah. um, Sweet and Low. That's yeah, yeah. the pink I, one. I definitely prefer like stevia to something like that. Anyway, right. Um, just kind of on the topic of sugar, do you find that, let's say, like I'm more of the school of thought that I'm going to kind of avoid all the artificial sweeteners, and then mm. if I want to have 
a cookie. I'm going to just have a regular cookie. That's the best, best thing every so often, very rarely. So do you think, you know, what is the impact of sugar, even if it's rare on the microbiome? Should we be concerned or it's just not a... I don't think... I don't think we should be concerned if, you know, in that case, you, you want to enjoy a treat every now and again, and it's just it's just normal sugar, that I would not be concerned. But, you know, if you're consuming the standard American diet, which is like high fat, high sugar, the fat and the sugar mixed together is a recipe for disaster in the gut microbiome. Now, every single animal study where they put them on a high fat, high sugar diet, they get really bad dysbiosis and really bad imbalance in the gut bacteria. So again, in moderation, I would, I think normal sugar is fine, but if it's a big part of your diet, I think for the, you know, uh, preserving your gut microbiome, it's probably best to to sort of take a step Mm -hmm. back. Right. So avoiding processed foods. Yeah. Most of the time eating, like you said, a diet centered on whole foods, Mm -hmm. avoiding sugar most of the time. I always too talk with my clients about, you know, what's the reason for the artificial sweetener? Is it just to kind of have a free pass and still be able to eat <laughs> as much sugar as you want, but call it free calories or just yeah. kind of a freebie? I mean, nothing is really free in life, yeah. right? I mean, everything's going to have some type of consequence. Exactly. And I think, you know, we say free calories, which in the immediate effect in the body, that's true in the sense that you, you're not necessarily absorbing the calories from it. But when the, the bacteria metabolize these artificial sweeteners, they produce short chain fatty acids. Now, I briefly mentioned those like butyrate. There's other examples, propionate, acetate. And these are actually calories. So 10% of our daily calories that we, we get uh, from undigested foods that the bacteria ferment and they produce these short chain fatty acids so they're typically lipogenic so you know the the fatty acids are they're going to be stored as fat in the body and when they break down artificial sweeteners they they will be producing short chain fatty acids so i would not necessarily say they're calorie free you know overall but as uh, an impact on and you know like blood um, blood sugar and immediate absorption, then then that's where calorie-free applies. <laughs> I'm curious because a lot of people, myself included, kind of switching from the diet sodas or the caloric beverages will then swap to seltzer water. Mm. And then a lot of those have natural flavors added in. Is there any concern about consuming natural flavors I don't know if they're labeled the same in the UK but here it's just kind of a broad term and you don't exactly know what's being used to flavor <laughs> yeah. any beverage or any item but have you d- read any research on natural flavors not necessarily I mean with natural flavors like you said it's probably quite different over here I know your labeling is a bit more dubious over there than, than, <laughs> than it is here I mean, we have what's called like E numbers um, and they're usually sort of additives and probably it's not necessarily flavoring, but there is a, an E number that we get and it's actually trans fats and trans fats also seem to be, you know, really detrimental to, to the gut bacteria and they cause dysbiosis. So they're, they're one thing to look out for on food mm. labels. What about refined seed oils, the quote-unquote vegetable oils? Oh, yeah. Um, well, refined seed oils, they make up a, you know, a big part of the 
standard uh, American diet. Mm -hmm. And they're typically high in omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. So uh, you, you know, your corn oil, for example, that's a really big one. And cottonseed oil, like really high in omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. And there's an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And we want to keep that as, as close to, to one-to-one as possible. So we should be aiming for at least, you know, four to one. So four omega-6 per one omega-3. But the standard American diet, I think it's like 25 to one. Mm-hmm. You know? And high omega-6, especially, you know, when it's oxidized from high temperature cooking, studies have shown that it can cause intestinal damage and produce uh, and the production of, of harmful bacteria. And in my opinion, the best, most well-studied diet with the most evidence behind it for a healthy life is the Mediterranean diet. So in in my case, I mostly just use what they use, you know, traditional cold pressed extra virgin olive oil and some butter. Like that, that's my go-to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And delicious. And delicious, <laughs> of course, yeah. Uh, and then people will also say to have excellent gut health you have to follow a gluten-free diet i know that's a big craze what's your thought on going gluten-free for gut health Hmm. well it is it that again is is really big at the moment going gluten-free i've got a lot of friends that have said you know i've been trying gluten-free recently and unless you know you have celiac disease or clinically diagnosed non-celiac gluten sensitivity not self-diagnosed then why would you give up pizza or pasta? There's some of like the best foods. Amen. Um, yeah, yeah. And I should reiterate, you know, not self-diagnosed gluten sensitivity. As I said, I've got a lot of friends who've said, I, you know, I stopped, I stopped gluten and I've improved. And people do notice that improvement when giving up wheat in particular, um, especially on digestive symptoms. But it could actually be a couple of other things in the wheat that were causing the problems in the first place. So fructans, is one of them and fructans are another type of FODMAP as I mentioned before a, a, you know fermentable carbohydrate and uh, they're digested uh, they're not digested they're fermented by the gut bacteria and wheat is really high in fructans so um, it can cause IBS symptoms in some people especially if you've got dysbiosis this imbalance in bacteria you know when they ferment the fructans they're going to produce gases and toxins which give you that, that sluggish feeling and you know the bloating and another thing is in in wheat and, and gluten containing grains but also non-gluten containing grains is um, amylase trypsin inhibitors and these are a protein as I said found probably highest in wheat but they're in all cereals all grains and they drive intestinal inflammation so we've got studies to show that they cause uh, an innate immune molecule called toll-like receptor 4 or TLR4. And this can lead to allergic disease like atopic eczema or, or dermatitis. And it's one of the reasons, you know, why some people's skin out, skin or allergies clear up when they give up wheat and other grains, you know, they follow up a, uh, a paleo diet and all of a sudden the, the skin's cleared up or, you know, I, I've not got, my asthma's got better and, that is one of the reasons why but you know grains are really important for for many people and they're great for the gut bacteria so I would not say you know cut I wouldn't say cut them out entirely you can do something to actually reduce the activity of these amylase trips inhibitors and that's just cooking your grains so cook them thoroughly now 
Italians have been boiling pasta in salted water for, for centuries. You know, they say it makes, it makes it taste better. But some studies have shown that it actually reduces the activity of these amylase trypsin inhibitors by oh. twice as much, you know, as if you boiled the pasta in water without salt. So, Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So I know kind of going along with that is people will say that gluten causes holes in your gut. And so they'll call it maybe causing leaky gut. Yes. Is that a thing or? So leaky gut is a thing. It's not necessarily the gluten causing the leaky gut. It's the inflammation. Okay. So when inflammation happens, it, it breaks down these junctions in between the intestinal epithelial cells and the epithelial cells are what are lined up side by side and they form, you know, the the layer of the intestine that is the primary barrier but we've also got the mucus layer above that uh, in the lumen where the bacteria are so that that is the first protective layer and then you've got the intestinal epithelium and then below that you've got the lamina propria where 70% of our immune system is so you might have heard that before 70% of the immune system is in the gut well most of the immune cells are in this layer and what they're doing is they're constantly monitoring you know what's in the gut and Leaky gut uh, is, the, the correct term would be increased intestinal permeability, so allowing more things, you know, through this lining. And, and inflammation is the main, you know, the main proprietor of, of, of leaky gut, whether that is an inflammatory reaction to gluten or those amylase trypsin inhibitors, whether it's um, lipopolysaccharide LPS, which is an endotoxin produced by by gram-negative gut bacteria, things like E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter, you know, the ones that cause food poisoning. Those are the, the typical things that, that cause uh, leaky gut or intestinal hyperpermeability. Mm. So, I mean, some people, I think, go gluten-free, which mm. means that they've actually kind of adopted, like you said, a more Mediterranean style of eating because they've yeah. given up many processed foods. So it could really be that their gut health is better just from giving up processed foods, correct? Precisely. When you go gluten-free, you're going to be avoiding the majority of, you know, off-the-shelf processed foods because, you know, most of those contain gluten or wheat. So, yeah, as you said, it's probably just the overall improvement in diet, which they're seeing the, the health benefits from. Hmm. I'm interested does sleep and the amount of sleep you get or the lack of sleep you get have any impact on gut health? You know, sleep sleep is essential for general health, but especially gut health. So based on some studies, we think that poor sleep has a really strong negative effect on gut health, especially on microbiome diversity. 
And this study showed that people, you know, who sleep well tend to have a more diverse microbiome. And diversity is the key for gut health. So those who are most healthy have the most diversity, so the most different types of bacteria in their gut. Those with diseases like uh, IBS, IBD, obesity tend to have really low, really poor diversity, so not a lot of types of bacteria in their gut. And there was, there was a really, really interesting study published uh, just a few weeks ago in September. And the researchers basically gave mice sleep apnea. So, you know, they're struggling to essentially breathe while they sleep. Um, so they get a poor quality of sleep. And then they took their microbiome and transplanted it into mice who were normal, sleeping normally. And what do you think happened? Mm, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, the new mice had naff sleep, terrible sleep. The, the mice, you know, they were sleeping fine, but now they've got this microbiome that is, you know, is totally different to what they had. It's less diverse and they end up sleeping more often during the day because they're constantly tired. So it seems that the bacteria we have in our gut probably affect how we sleep. And one of the, the reasons that could be is, you know, they produce um, a lot of, of byproducts like the short chain fatty acids, as I described, but also neurotransmitters. So chemical messengers that um, impact the, the nervous system. And I'm sure you've probably heard of the gut brain axis. That's another emerging mm -hmm. area in our field as well. Wow. Fascinating. Is stress kind of similar to sleep? Exactly. So stress is another thing that affects people's health, especially gut health. And you only have to look at those with like IBS and IBD where stress can cause a flare up, but it's kind of like, you know, the age old question, the chicken and the egg, what came first? Does the digestive symptoms of the digestive issues cause the stress? Or is the stress caused by the symptoms? Now, as I said, we know that there's a gut-brain connection. So the brain is part of the central nervous system and the gut is part of the enteric nervous system. And these are connected by what's called the vagus nerve. It runs all the way down from the brainstem to the gut. Um, but we think the gut bacteria also communicate to the brain. And we actually think it should be renamed to the gut microbiome brain axis just because they have such an influence on, on our brain health. And uh, they communicate in a few different ways. The main way is by signaling this, this vagus nerve, you know, what connects the gut and the brain. But as, as I briefly mentioned, through the production of these neurotransmitters and their chemical messengers uh, used by the brain, and the most probably well-known is serotonin. And some of us might have heard, or you might not have heard that, that quote, I've seen it knocking around on social media, you know, 90% of serotonin is made in the gut. And most of that is actually from the gut bacteria. Mm. So, yeah, so serotonin is a really important molecule. It, um, it regulates appetite, hunger, uh, sleep. So, again, important for sleep, sexual desire, arousal, and it's most commonly associated with mood. So we we used to know that low levels of serotonin is associated with depression and beneficial bacteria like bifidobacterium and lactobacillus what they do is they metabolize the amino acid tryptophan into 5-hydroxytryptamine and that is serotonin 5-HT okay but 
if there's inflammation in the gut or in the body or low levels of these beneficial bacteria, then the bacteria don't turn the tryptophan into serotonin. They turn it into something called kynurenine. And kynurenine is a pro-inflammatory signaling molecule. So it causes inflammation. Now, you know, 90% of the serotonin is made in the gut, but none of that can actually cross the blood-brain barrier and have an effect in the brain. But this kynurenine can. So higher higher levels of this, this kynurenine is found in cognitive disorders uh, like Alzheimer's disease and psychological disorders like schizophrenia and depression. And it just reminded me another interesting study, again in mice. So they took the microbiome from schizophrenic patients and then they transplanted it into mice. What do you think happened? Yeah. The, the mice showed increased like anxiety-like behaviors. And this was actually in line with um, higher levels of this kynurenine in their blood. So, you know, if you want to try and suppress this kynurenine, you know, take a lot of anti-inflammatory, antioxidant um, food or supplements, you, you want to increase the lactobacillus and bifidobacterium in your gut because these actually are shown to suppress the kynurenine pathway and produce serotonin. Hmm. Wow. As you're talking about this, it's making me think of how fascinated I am by outer space. It's like <laughs> a similar fascination. You know, I have we have everything. aliens in our gut, essentially. I, 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 uh, it's really just fascinating. Before we get to just the final questions, I'd love to know the connection between exercise or lack thereof and gut health. So exercise is awesome, again, for general health. And I, I saw your post on the benefits of exercise, was it last week? And, you know, it, it's really good. It's really useful. And even exercise alone has the power to improve the microbiome. And there was a really good study in, in lean, so thin individuals and obese individuals and it showed that six weeks of exercise altered the gut microbiota to one that was uh, more populated with uh, beauty rate producing bacteria so I, I mentioned this beauty rate before really important molecule for the gut it uh, reduces intestinal inflammation might protect against colon cancer and, and inflammatory bowel disease so it <laughs> It's, exercise is just one way you know we can increase that and it shows how important exercise is if you do suffer from something like inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis and the, what was really good about the study is it showed it wasn't even a lot of exercise you know just some cardiovascular exercise I think it was 30 to 60 minutes three times a week for six weeks mm. and what's even more interesting is they got the participants to stop exercising for six weeks. And after six weeks, their gut microbiome, their gut bacteria reverted back to its original state. So it shows, you know, the, the gut microbiome is like a muscle and it, it needs constant physical stimulation to be at its best. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. I'm so grateful for your time. We're almost at 50 minutes and just, I know it's much later there for you than it is for me here in California. But I was, I always ask my guests a final question, which is based on the title of the podcast. And it's, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? So I like investment because, you know, to me, it sounds, it's like something you can do now, but reap the rewards later in life. And mm -hmm. it would be, it would be apt for me 
to say make an investment in your gut health specifically because uh, you know as i've explained and as the research is showing the gut microbiome is so important to to general health and changes to the gut microbiome especially dysbiosis is associated with so many disease so i hope you know during the the podcast today i've give i've given some investment tips but uh, i want to reiterate you know you don't have to go out and spend a fortune on supplements or gadgets you know focus on what our ancestors did or what we've been doing for our generations and that's diet a diet high in um, plants diverse lots of lots of fiber increase those you know those beauty rate producing bacteria in the gut lots of movement exercise doesn't have to be intense uh, just a little bit of cardiovascular exercise can also benefit the gut microbiome and sleep you know sleep it is really good for the for the microbiome as i said and lastly you know don't forget to have a bit of fun every now and again <laughs> no i love that because that's also such an important part of yeah living life right well i know everybody's going to want to follow you on instagram and elsewhere so where can where's the best place for everybody to find you yeah so i'm mostly on instagram my handle is at mr gut health so I only made the account and the account uh, in lockdown this year, back in around April, and I wanted you know something that was a bit a bit catchy, you know, easy to to remember. So I'm still learning on Instagram. Uh, it's hard to keep active, especially since you know I'm so busy at work recently. But um, we're doing lots of research, so I'll be publishing that on my page as well. So if you follow me, keep an eye out for that as well. Awesome. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I'm, I love that Mr. Gut Health was available on Instagram. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I know. I was, I was shocked. I was trying so many different things, but. Yeah, know. that's perfect. And yeah. it's always good when the handle you want is available. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard to, hard to find these days. Well, thank you so much again for all of your information. Sorry if I asked you too many questions at the end of a long day. But... No, I, I, I mean. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on, Brooke. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.